There exist very few things, fewer than you think, and God had meager reason for these. I suppose it might hurt, learning your darlings are dirt, all those jewels you report in the granite. Mortal, if I had anything like a soul, I would have sold it to embrace the void. void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the new story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 103 of Embrace the Void, where the shrooms are kicking in and we're definitely all one. This week, I have on a longtime friend of the show to do an in-depth uh, follow-up on a topic that got mentioned back in the Keith Frankish episodes. So if you missed those, I would recommend going back. They pair really well with this episode. All right, let's commune with Spinoza's God. My guest this week is longtime friend of the show, Hunter Ash. Hunter, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, dear void. It's good to finally have you on. I feel like we've been chatting on internets forever at this point in internet time. So welcome yeah, to the yeah. show. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you've provided me a lot of um, valuable insights on a variety of technical subjects that I barely begin to understand. Um, and you got in touch with me, I think, after the Keith Frankish conversation um, on a on a specific point about panpsychism that uh, went a little underdeveloped in those conversations. So I'm really excited to do a deep dive into um, this particular topic. Uh, me too. Before we get to that, though, I thought it'd be fun for a little bit of a warm-up. Um, one of the first things that you and I interacted on that I thought was really fascinating was your um, utter destruction and debunking via facts of the simulation theory, which is a, a theory that comes up. I, I get at least one uh, paper or something or prompt about simulation theory about once per semester, I think. So it's it's sort of very prevalent in people's minds right now so i was curious if you wanted to maybe lay that one out and then knock it down a little bit before we get into the panpsychism yeah absolutely so uh bostrom's simulation theory uh as i understand it and i've i've read a decent amount about it is that um so he, he has a couple of axioms you know one is we will continue to develop increasingly powerful uh computational technology our computers will just keep getting better in kind of an unbounded way um, and given that that happens, one of the things we'll do with those is create uh, a bunch of simulations of our own history, you know, our own past mm -hmm. before we had that technology. And then given that we do that, and then given that certain things about theories of consciousness are true, that it can be instantiated on computers, there will be so many more simulated people that it's re it's more reasonable to guess that we currently are one of these historical simulations 
than that we are, you know, sort of at the top level of reality or whatever. And right. my, it, it blows my mind that this has gained as much traction as it has. I don't know how prevalent it is in, you know, professional philosophical communities. But the problem with it is that first prong, that our computational capacity will grow in this unbounded way such that, you know, we could simulate a whole universe on our laptop at some point, you know, our magical space laptop. And there, uh, <laughs> there are basic physical constraints that are unlikely to be overturned even by, like, a future theory of physics. Like, I don't think this would change meaningfully if, you know, string theory was true or something, that bound computational capacity in a bunch of different ways. Uh, so just to give one example... There, there's a firm theoretical upper bound on how many bits you can pack into a given amount of space or a given amount of matter. There are other constraints about, uh, you know, how fast operations can happen, uh, how much mm -hmm. energy they would they would consume, how much heat they would produce, and uh, and you know these are these are very generous bounds. These are like. If you pack more in than this, it can it you know collapses into a black hole. You know those kinds of bounds. So so quantum computing isn't going to solve this problem. I I honestly don't know that much about quantum computing at a detailed level, but the bounds okay. on like the number of bits you can pack into a given space, I'm confident survive that. Yeah, because they're just about information generally, not computation. So you know they apply to black holes and you know neutron stars and stuff. So yeah, so, yeah, I don't think that'll fix it. And what what's the most advanced simulation that we can probably expect? Is it like Sims twenty twenty? Like what are we talking about? Um, I I would put it in terms of the ratio of the size of the computer to what could be simulated. You know, okay. so uh, if you turned all the material on the Earth, and I'm just I'm just you know uh, making the you know, the quantitative details here up, but I think it's right within like an order of magnitude or two. If you turn okay. the entire earth into a computer or every particle in the earth is part of like some magically perfectly efficient idealized computer, maybe we could get like a really high resolution convincing dinner party, you know? So that's kind of how <laughs> I think about it, you know, it's, and this should be intuitive, right? Because there's no way mm -hmm. a given physical system can represent more information than it itself contains, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. even you know, without all the, the detailed mathematics, there's an obvious boundary that like a thing can't sim simulate something more complicated than itself, right? So <laughs> because the most efficient way to simulate something where there's no information loss is just to be that. Thing. Uh -huh. So you know, yeah, that, best, that's sort of my question. Right? Yeah, I was just—I mean, it's curious. Like you mentioned, like it can't be—it can't you know do that, and then I immediately think like. And this maybe gets into a little bit of our main topic, but like our physical universe simulates something with a high, high, high degree of complexity. How is it managing to do that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It seems to be doing it by being it is what I would say. <laughs> it's you know, perfect, you know, isomorphic simulation. You know, the electron a... perfectly models an electron. <laughs> but, you know, like however many numbers you need to fully characterize like a hydrogen atom that's all of the detail it has. You can't pack the information to simulate two hydrogen atoms into one, if that makes sense. Other than just building a hydrogen atom. Right, yeah. I mean, you can make a second one, and then it's in two. Right, yeah. right. Okay, um, so, yeah. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to give a follow-up, just, you yeah. know, because 
you say you get a lot of these questions, so I'm sure someone will bring this up. They try to get around this by saying that you don't have to simulate everything in full, like quantum mechanical detail all the time, right? So you'd have some kind of monitoring thing that figures out whenever someone's about to do like a collider experiment and increases <laughs> the resolution temper. And like, that's just, you know, that doesn't work at any level. Bostrom himself actually put that forward as a defense and it's ridiculous because like macro level behaviors only happen the way they do because of the, you know, microstructure. Like you'd have mm -hmm. to have like individual like light bulb subroutines and transistor subroutines that, you know, get around the, it's, you know, I think it makes it worse, not better. So yeah. Would there have to be just like a bunch of really complicated heuristics within the system that allow for like massive jumps in information and then, then it would end up being unreliable? Is that how that would try to would work both, out? Yeah, it would both be unreliable. Somebody actually, <laughs> they crowdfunded an experiment to test whether or not you get sort of like pixelated glitchiness at a low level to test this theory empirically. But Yeah, uh, with the um, background radiation, right? Yeah, that, I think so. Like, yeah. Yeah, you know, basically they're trying to find uh, the technical word is like anisotropy, which is like things aren't equally going out in all directions spherically. Because if it's pixelated, mm -hmm. they can't exactly do that, right? But, okay. uh, but or yeah. Or can they? <laughs> <laughs> or they, like, this is another thing Bostrom's actually said, is that if we ever see those results, they'll just edit our, the controller will just edit our minds to not remember them. Like, it just, it gets silly. Like, I think it's a very uh -huh. silly model, you know. It quickly becomes untestable in any kind of way. Yeah, it, yeah. Or it corrects for its its testability in a sense. Right. It just becomes another candidate metaphysics with nothing in particular to recommend it. Well, we're all about candidate men metaphysics here on this one, right? Because we're <laughs> we're going to look at a variety of candidate metaphysics with a variety of things to um, recommend them and not so. It seems like absolutely um, good okay so if if you if we haven't lost everyone already um i think we're doing all right so far so we're going to talk today about uh panpsychism and why people like me who don't want to deny the existence of phenomenal consciousness may have to commit to some version of panpsychism is that right you're going to present some kind of fork which is going to say if I buy into the existence of phenomenal consciousness. I have to accept that it exists everywhere on some level. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to say that there are two alternatives and the one that is the consciousness realist one can only like panpsychism is the only option. And really okay. quick, I want to say something just because I'm going to say a bunch of stuff that sounds in insane and bizarre, you know, to like uh -huh. someone who hasn't thought about this. When I say that something exists, I'm saying like in a really deep ontological sense. So like cars don't exist in the way I'm using the word exist. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, if we have time at the end, we'll do the uh, real, not real lightning round and you can tell us how many things don't exist in your view. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah. And you're going to you're going to lay out one in one of your premises what you really mean by exist, which I think is valuable. And it'll it'll mean that chairs don't exist, which, you know, is not the least implausible p position that has been laid out on this particular show. So why don't you walk us through your argument? I think we'll, this will be fun to do as a sort of close reading step by step of the argument. And, and with each premise, I'll maybe ask for a little bit of clarification. Yeah, yeah. I'll pause after each premise and let you if, if I did, if I made a mistake, you can tell me. Great. So start us off then. What's your first major premise for why I have to be a panpsychist now? Okay, so this, I, I barely included this because it's something I assume most of the listeners will agree with, but I'm assuming consciousness 
tracks slash is determined by like physical reality as it's commonly understood, right? There's no like causally active like soul or like ectoplasm or anything. Like it's somehow a feature of physical systems. Uh, so that's premise one. Are we good there? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, you know, like with a broad enough description of like coextensive slash you know interdependent with i don't i don't think anyone's trying at this point to really lay out some sort of super weird substance dualism where there's non-material souls that have magic rules that apply to them um and we can obviously the the panpsychism question brings up like emergence versus not but broadly speaking i think we're on board at least that like this is connected to a material system in a reliable law-like kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so premise two, I don't know. It's, it's like a, it's more of a classification scheme, but mm -hmm. I'm roughly dividing uh, properties we assign to physical systems into two categories, uh, inexact or vague properties we assign to things and, you know, precise or exact properties we assign to things. So uh, as I said in our email exchange, an example of an imprecise property is the property of being a chair, right? You, you take some collection of particles and you say that thing has the property of being a chair, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the time in daily life, this is useful. There aren't that many cases that are so ambiguous that it causes a lot of problems for us, but you could create border cases. You know, I could design some object where people would disagree about whether or not this thing was a chair. And it's not obvious that there's like a truth of the matter, right? Yeah. It's just, uh, it's not talking about something that's an absolute feature of our universe. It's just, it's a convenience of language, right? It's a heuristic or it's an approximation. Um, so those are inexact properties. And mm -hmm. exact properties, uh, the examples I've been going to are uh, like momentum or electric charge, where, in the, you know, and this is all independent of uh, epistemology. You know, we might not ever be able to know the value mm -hmm. of those things for a given system exactly, but in principle, they have one, right? Uh, and they don't run into these bright line problems where, you know, you start like changing a chair or like you're in the middle of building it. And like, when does the chair essence enter it? Right. <laughs> uh, like, you know, I think a uh, lot about that particular question. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, like, you know, electric charge momentum aren't subject to that. And just a quick note here. Um, a lot of people's minds might go to quantum mechanics, but there are analogs that are the same, you know, like, yes, uh, you know, position or momentum is like, you know, uh, uncertain in quantum mechanics, but there are other quantities I could use as examples. So I'm just sticking with the sort of classical understanding to make it not crazy, uh, tedious. Uh, does that make sense? Right. That distinction? Yeah. So, right. You're not, you're not making an access claim that we can always have knowledge of these features, but you're claiming that the features are that, that they cleave reality at the joint in a way that chairness might not. Or exactly. other sort of uh, socially constructed descriptions of things might not. Just to give an example of things that are probably very much in the in. I mean, obviously, you and I can argue edge cases of like exact versus inexact properties. I think a little bit, but like, sure. right? There could be easy examples of things like uh, chairs. I, I, I some of, like the philosopher in me wants to like now write a science fiction of like a culture in which all of the things they experience are edge cases. 
where it's like all of their chairs are just like right on the edge of not being chairs and their tables are like just barely tables or something. And what would that world be like for them? All their furniture is almost identical. <laughs> right. It's all just variations on a slightly different square. And like a another yeah. person shows up and like they have the same word for every single object. Right, right. Why are you all sitting on these slightly shorter tables? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like Australians in the word bench. Yeah. <laughs> profligate use of the word bench. Okay, so so we have these exact versus inexact properties, which is actually, I think, you know, not something... I mean, it's something that we have touched on in this show before when we've talked about things like the Buddhist distinction between conventional truth and ultimate truth. That, like, conventionally chairs exist, but ultimately there's just atoms arranged chair-wise or something. And you can talk about the forces in involved in those atoms or quarks or whatever, but, like, the thing that is constructed out of them is an inexact ent uh, entity in that sense. It has sort of vague, ill-defined boundaries. Yes, exactly. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've been thinking about it in those explicit terms, and I think that's a really great... Uh, contribution to language from buddhist philosophy so mm -hmm. even though it's totally a cheat and they're just like they're just having it both ways because they're they want to essentially it's, you know sure, it's, like, sure, it's, but... it's sort of a non-answer to the question in a sense but it is a useful distinction i think to think about like properties that chunk reality in a functional way and properties that really do cleave it at the joint though it seems like in your next premise we're going to find out there are no joints so we'll want to get to that in a second but uh, does that seem fair yeah yeah definitely and i i don't think it's that much of a cheat just because like you have to have something to say to people other than just saying like cars aren't real you know no one's right, gonna right. you know take that seriously so you have to cash out the sense in which that's a useful way of talking still right Right, we spend all our time defining what we mean by this particular kind of real. Right. Yeah. Um, great. So, so let's get to your next premise, which I think uh, things start to get interesting. Yeah, yeah. This might get a little more contentious, although I'm I'm still very confident about it. So, my next premise is that only properties that are exact are candidates for reality in an ontological sense, and you know the the. The basic argument is just that like things are real or they're not, and they can't be, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. they it can't be ambiguous in principle, not epistemologically. It can't be ambiguous in principle whether some real thing exists. You know, reality at itself, independent of how much we can know about it, can't be vague. I don't know what that would mean. So I would say that anything that and I'm not saying everything, every uh, precise property necessarily is ontologically real, but I think it's a necessary condition just to get started. Uh-huh. And you give us, an, I think, sort of as an explainer here, right, something close to, like, the Sorites kinds of paradoxes, right, where if the property is uh, imprecise in this kind of way and you can't cleanly distinguish its boundaries, then then like trying to build an ontology around it is dysfunctional. Does that seem kind of fair? Yeah, exactly. I, I would, that would be a disc any ontology that came up with those conclusions must be flawed. And so, so like the example is, um, and I'm, I'm going to need this uh, sort of thought tool a lot, but it's the idea of continuously deforming something, right? So you're mm -hmm. shuffling, 
you're slowly, you know, moving the particles in some physical system uh, around. And, you know, you're moving them smoothly. You're not teleporting them. And so let's say I'm someone like, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, a caricature of a Platonist or something. And I think okay. there's chair essence, you know, and chair things partake of chair essence, right? And as you, like, it, it's, <laughs> it's really real in some way. It's not a way of talking. It's a property they have independent of observation or language. Then as so I, right. Yeah. As I continuously deform a chair into a table, say, if you're a believer in chair essence, you're going to have to pick a point in this continuous smooth deformation where the chair essence leaves and the table essence enters or is created out of nothing or whatever, you know, you want to say, and that's always going to feel entirely arbitrary. Right. Okay. So this may be the first point in which I might want to issue a little bit of pushback because I wonder if, I mean, partly we can say, right, this is a matter of how we prefer to define what is real, right? If, I think it's more valuable to center our understanding of realness on what is functional, even if imprecise, right? There might be some argument to that. So it seems to me, for example, that like I could distinguish between better and worse outcomes in a variety of situations, even though I might not be able to make a line precisely along the spectrum of outcomes where I can say this outcome in particular is at the point where it becomes unacceptable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I would just say that we're, we're taught we're we have different projects at that point, you know? Okay. I don't know that we would, you know, disagree on anything. It's just, you know, real, the term real has become, you know, like an essentially contestable concept. So right. the solution to which <laughs> You know, you say that three times fast, Toby Buckle will appear. (laughs) You turned me on to a show. I've listened to like all of it now. But uh, good, right? Yeah, it's really good. Um, But yeah, so the solution to that, and you know, this doesn't work in his political context, but the solution to that intellectually is we can just come up with new words. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. my thing is real prime or whatever. And uh, Schmiel is my my thing. Yours is real. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So That's the like, smarmy you know, philosopher joke version of that thing. You guys go with prime. <laughs> we just start messing with the vowels. Right, right. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, I have a math degree, so I went with the variable notation. But yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, so I, I don't think that that signals a disagreement or really challenges the project. You know, I'm talking mm-hmm. about real in terms of, you know, what in principle exists as opposed to what's useful. Well, I mean, so I guess I would want to say both both things exist in principle. One exists in a more discrete way, it seems like, a more quantifiable way, potentially. But I guess I don't want to – it doesn't necessarily lead me to think that the other one doesn't exist. It just exists perhaps in a different kind of way. And obviously this doesn't, like, defeat your argument entirely. I just think it's an interesting uh, flag to plant here for people who might – consider sort of trying to push back some at this particular point sure sure and you know i haven't done it yet but i'm about to apply this to consciousness and right the challenge i would put to you is that like if you think things that are real can tolerate a certain amount of vagueness does it make any sense to you to say it's vague whether something is having a subjective experience okay good exactly yeah this is this is the part where i think we can really get into some back and forth because 
you know, I'll buy for the sake of argument your definition of reality so that we can then get into what does this continuity argument mean for consciousness in particular? Yes. Yeah. So uh, as I was doing research for this, I actually found uh, some professional philosophers making the exact argument I wanted to make, which was kind of validating. Mm -hmm. But uh, so basically the argument is that if you want to say consciousness is real in the sense that I mean it, and you don't want to be a panpsychist, right? That means that for most non-panpsychists, they don't want to just say there's like one precise arrangement of, you know, matter that's not conscious and all the other ones are. Like that's technically not panpsychist, but mm -hmm. you tend to want to say like almost every possible arrangement of matter isn't conscious, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, rocks and clouds, you know, gases, whatever, right? So is that correct? You're asking if I want to say that at this point? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would say at least I want to say that there, there is a kind of consciousness that appears to exist in higher evolved life forms that does not appear to exist everywhere in the universe. That's as far as I want to go at this point. But yeah, go oh. ahead. Okay, uh, maybe we could distinguish between consciousness and experience. Because for a lot of people, consciousness is loaded with like cognitive you know content so well, even even like phenomenal consciousness like i'm so i mean reading through your argument right at this point my feeling is what i want to say is i'm confident that phenomenal consciousness exists in my mind and i believe in the minds of other highly evolved beings i don't have sufficient evidence to argue that it does or doesn't exist in any other beings and I think it's an interesting question of whether we have to, you know, essentially assume that it might, um, based on your argument. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, if you don't mind, I've pulled two quotes. Sure, uh, yeah, absolutely. One, yeah, one is a paraphrase from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on panpsychism, mm -hmm. uh, and one is a direct quote. So first I'll give the paraphrase that makes the case in general, and then the second quote, offers it in the specific context of evolution. So here's the first quote. Sure. Um, so Philip Goff has argued that consciousness is not vague and that this leads to a problem of the heap, you know, sorties style argument for panpsychism. Very mm -hmm. roughly, if consciousness does not admit of borderline cases, then we will have to suppose that some utterly precise micro-level change down to an exact arrangement of particles marked the first appearance of consciousness or the change from non-conscious to conscious embryo or fetus, and is going to seem arbitrary that it was that utterly precise change that was responsible for this significant change in nature. Okay, so that's the mm -hmm. first quote. And mm -hmm. then in the context of evolution, this is a direct quote from uh, William Clifford. Um, we cannot suppose that so enormous a jump from one creature to another should have occurred at any point in the process of evolution as the introduction of a fact entirely different and absolutely separate from the physical fact. It is impossible for anybody to point out the particular place in the line of descent where that event can be supposed to have taken place. The mm -hmm. only thing that we can come to, if we accept the doctrine of evolution at all, is that even in the very lowest organism, even in the amoeba which swims about in our own blood, there is something or other inconceivably simple to us which is of the same nature with our own consciousness. We ought to try every possible mode of conceiving of consciousness so that it may not appear equivalent to the eruption into the universe of a new nature non-existent till then. 
Right. So this is the like the panpsychist pushback on uh, consciousness as an emergent property, right? The idea that it emerged out of a previously non-conscious physical universe they think is fundamentally untenable because of these kind of problems of the heap where it's like where does the, where is the jump made right is that right mm-hmm. i think it's a really interesting argument like I'm, I'm i'm sympathetic to it in a in a variety of ways and like as you were laying up this fork for me i really like i didn't have a huge dog in this fight but now i'm very sympathetic i think to the panpsychist view in a sort of way where if what you're arguing is true then the bullet that i want to bite is the panpsychist bite uh bullet a little bit i think um yeah yeah that makes sense because you know the other i said it's a fork i've only really talked about one of the options the other option mm -hmm. is that consciousness is an imprecise concept that it's you know it's the same thing as like the property of being a chair where it's right. it's not really deeply real it's just a convenient way of talking about certain kinds of systems for everyday life and i you know i'm pretty sure you want it to be more significant than that well it depends right so it depends on whether when we talk about it as being a imprecise thing if it can still have phenomenal nature to it then i i don't have any problem with that right like i don't mm -hmm. Like, what seems real to me, what seems unavoidably true to me is that I am having phenomenal experiences. If they are of a weird, imprecise nature, um, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. But I do think it's I want to I want to sort of press down a little bit on your discussion of continuous versus non-continuous properties. So you, you mentioned electromagnetism, I think, as one of the examples, right, of like a, a, a essential property, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh electric charge precisely because i wanted to give an example of a discrete property that's real and a continuous one like momentum so yeah so 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 electro electro electrostatic charge right is a yeah. real property correct um I, it's a candidate it's a precise property yeah it's a precise property right so how is it that it and this is again non-scientist asking this question to try to unpack these concepts a little bit like Clearly, you know, in a conventional sense, right, um, my taser has a has an electrostatic charge in a way that, like, a really inert piece of, you know, insert whatever object doesn't carry electrostatic charge very well, ceramic or something like that, right? Like, but you would say that it's continuous in that even what we think of as the incredibly inert object still has an electrostatic charge of some sort. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I mean, it's electrostatic charges you know, for most objects is net neutral or close to it. You know, it's never going to be exactly zero. You know, it's never going to have exactly the same number of electrons and protons. But it's going to mm -hmm. be close for most objects, yeah. But, you know, it is a discrete property. But I still think it survives the test because, you know, you can draw lines around things and either mm -hmm. there's an electron in there or there's not. So it does have those jumps, but it's it does not seem arbitrary where they occur. Right. Okay. That's just I'm just, you know, trying to clarify because I think it's important here to note that like one straw man version I think of panpsychism is the idea that like just because everything carries with it some kind of consciousness that it's all conscious in the way that we're conscious. Right? Oh, so absolutely. you know, like com comparable to the electrostatic charge, right? It doesn't mean that like 
you know, my arc reactor has the same level of electrostatic nature as an inert piece of, of rock or something. Um, even if they have on some level, they are, they are similar in both having some kind of charge, right? Exactly. No, yeah. So the, the, the kind of uh, phenomenology that I would describe to, you know, like a hydrogen atom or something, right. you know, or, or a brick would be, you know, unimaginably simple. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. we can easily conceive of it because they don't have a lot of the things that we usually tether to consciousness. They don't have memory. They don't have cognition, you know. So I'm just imagining something like, you know, just flashes of light in like this inchoate, you know, void when they're impacted by a photon or something. That's the best I can do in terms of a description. But it's nothing yeah. you or I would recognize, you know. I think this is where information theory can sort of play an important role here. And like, uh, I'm thinking of like Ken Wilber's work about sort of the internal and the external features of any particular thing. He talks about like a lot of different quadrants of this, like, you know, you have an internal feature uh, like consciousness and an external feature like behavior, or you have um internal features like desires and external features like a society that acts out in the world or something um you know what we might argue is that there is infor- there is internal information to a um a particle that may not be sort of directly observable in purely in like from from the perspective of that thing in a similar way that there is some internal perspective to us as more robust conscious entities that is not externally readily observable um and it would be entirely possible that's true and we couldn't either i think prove or disprove that kind of claim is that correct uh, yeah yeah i mean not not empirically you know the right. the way i've i've gotten to where i am is just by eliminating all the alternatives i see but yes yeah that's exactly any no more I can no more mind meld with you, at least with current technology, than I could with an electron, right? So, like, I can't feel what it's like to, you know, to feel that. I don't even know, you know, it's not even clear that would be meaningful. Uh, But, but yeah, the the idea is that there would be some kind of internal information, yeah. And, like, it's, you know, it's sort of what it's like to be a bat problem as applied to a, you know, particle instead of a bat, right? Like... And, and and there are, I think, degrees here to some extent, right? So I think you can actually reasonably empirically infer that there are phenomenal experiences happening in my mind that are, if not exactly like the ones in your mind, in some sense, reasonably comparable, right? Setting aside the, is my red your red? Like, my pain is similar to your pain in some kind of way because they they came about as a result of like you said at the beginning your first premise similar physical processes right we have reason to assume that like similarly situated similarly evolved physical properties would be producing similar phenomenal states and we can scale that down a little bit to things like a bat and say there's probably something it's like to be a bat where it experiences some version of pain and pleasure something comparable to ours but there may not be a perfectly fine line where we can say where an entity stops experiencing that level of informational complexity. Is that is that how this argument would play out? Yes, exactly. You know, you could literally do a problem of a heap thing by like removing one neuron at a time from a bat. You know? But in terms of the like, I'm the not ant- allowed near living creatures, but you can go ahead and do that. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I mean, in terms of the anti-solipsism thing, like why I assume that your suite of experiences is similar to mine, it's just a parsimony argument. Like mm-hmm. everything else about you is, you know, sufficiently similar that it would be, you know, weird and arbitrary if somehow the universe had singled out me to have, you know, this kind of experience and you'd have an entirely different kind of experience. Right. But it would be entirely possible that like, there's nothing to disprove the claim that electrons have their own kind of quote unquote inner world of experience that could be radically like it couldn't even look like a flash. Right. It could be, you know, phenomenal natures that like we don't even have or something, for example. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would imagine since we're made of them that, you know, our experiences Mm. are probably built up out of those in some way. And that's the biggest objection to, panpsychism is the combination problem exactly Mm -hmm. how does that building up happen but yeah i mean the closest we could get and you know it's unless you know maybe you're a master meditator it's impossible to really clear your head of everything else but you know like (laughs) like one pixel of your vision in one moment of time you know something like that without any Mm -hmm. of your opinions about it your memories you know the the associating a bunch of pixels to get without all of that, you know, that kind of thing. I guess, especially when I think about it from an informational perspective, like I don't have any problem with the like uh, combination issue because it seems like the information inside of a electron, we'll, we'll call it the internal states and we'll call that conscious, right? Those could be wholly, I'm, I'm fine with them being wholly separate in some ways from the like ridiculous outputs of my you know evolved complicated heuristic based um sensory organs do you know what i mean that like it could be that i'm super weird in in, like the features that we as evolved creatures are experiencing and like there doesn't need to be a way that it easily maps onto the internal states of the electron because again it may be that because the full informational complexity of the electron both internal and external are what bring about my kind of consciousness yeah yeah the way i've sort of been seeing it and there are you know there are a bunch of like really interesting difficult questions when you want to flesh this out in detail but i sort of think of it as it's like a painting you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like our, our like higher level conscious consciousness is kind of like a painting And that it is made of, you know, it's made out of all of these like elementary, like unimaginably simple pixel-like experiences. And, you know, the whole doesn't look any, you know, like a painting doesn't look anything like one atom of paint, you know, but it is Mm -hmm. made. So we have these two forks. And I mean, this is something that I think is important to reemphasize over and over in philosophy is that like, at the end of the day, we have these two competing theories, at least two competing theories, but right, we're talking about two main ones in your fork right now, and certain things rise and fall with each of them, right? If you buy theory A, you get these solutions and these problems. If you buy theory B, you get other solutions and other problems. Um, what do you see as the, like, if, if this solves this problem of continuity, what are the major other problems with this view, do you think, besides you know, how do atom consciousness scale up to human consciousness? Um, so this is a conclusion that <laughs> I've only, you know, not a conclusion, but it's a position I'm sort of sitting at for want of anything else uh, that I've only <laughs> come to <laughs> since I started looking into this for this. Uh, like all good theories uh, of mind. Right, right. Yeah, it's just what I've been driven to. 
But um, I think it might be the case that, and I can't see a way out of this, that like we as a collection of a bunch of particles don't have a separate consciousness that is the aggregation of all the subconsciousnesses, right? Like there's not, there's just all of those. They're arranged in a particular way, but there's not an extra thing like appropriating them. And what that would mean is that a lot of phenomenological things that we would want to take as basic, like pain, mm-hmm. being just assemblages of these unimaginably basic sort of like atomic experiences are like chair-like properties. They're not really real in a deep sense. They're real in a conventional sense. And that would, at least at this, you know, like deepest, most absolute level, undercut what I see is like the only real basis for an absolute morality. Now, morality would still be, it would be as real as, you know, like economics or, you know, like uh, being a mechanic or something, but it wouldn't be really rooted, you know, at the bedrock of the universe. So that's a problem. Yeah, which I'm not on board with, as you know. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I knew that'd be the biggest place you'd jump off. So, <laughs> Well, but I also I also think that it's contestable about whether... If if I really buy into the illusionist project, Keith, it seemed like, was not fully on board with the conclusion that, like, value is not real and therefore morality is not real. I think you could make a case that, like, even with an illusionist view of, um, you know, that the kind of material reductionist – he doesn't want to call it reductionist, but the, the kind of materialist-driven view of consciousness that you could still have moral truths that derive from, you know, the, the constructed nature of consciousness. Yes, they just couldn't be perfectly absolute. You know, they couldn't be quite as precise as, you know, electric charge or momentum. But they could be as real as anybody who'd be worried about this would need them to be. You know, it's just that there's this level of lack of tolerance for vagueness that pretty much nobody cares about walking around where those things would sort of blur out and go away. But you you could pretty much save it, yeah. Well, so let's talk about this a little bit, actually. I... This idea of vagueness, I think I'm, I want to see if we can pry it apart from mind dependence in the sense that when I talk about moral realism, what, what really matters for me, the thing that I care about is not that like the first particles in the universe had moral truths infused in them, but like there are certain truths about how you ought to treat especially conscious entities um, that are independent of anyone's beliefs about them. And I think, I don't know, I feel like we might be able to pry apart this idea of something is a constructed feature of reality or an imprecise feature of reality from the idea that it is a, therefore, subjective feature of reality that, like, maybe maybe not. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong and that, like, this goes back to, like, if I can't, you know, if I can't distinguish ex- the essential features of chairness, then, like, we're all just making up terminology here. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, my intuition is still really strong that reality, like real deep reality, can't be vague because I don't know what that would mean. Like, I don't even think it's appropriate to apply that word to it. I think vague, vagueness is a feature of our descriptions of the world. So hmm. I, I can't see any way to admit a uh, a real property into the like clubhouse or sorry, a vague property into the clubhouse of vagueness or of realness. Sorry. <laughs> right. But, uh, so, yeah. 
no, so while we're on this and morality, right? So let me let me think about how I would sort of characterize moral truth then to avoid this kind of vagueness problem because it gets tricky, right? When you talk about absolutism and morality, right? I don't I don't want to buy. No one wants to. I think in this world, sort of buy into a kind of absolutism that says you know everyone has to engage in the exact same lifestyle in order to be happy or something like that. Um, that that objectivism can be separate from absolutism, especially if you're like me and you're a pluralist and you think that like there are a couple of different right answers to hard ethical questions, and then a variety of like really distinctly wrong answers. Um, and I wonder if I can if I can salvage that on your particular view and argue that like there are hardline distinctions between acceptable and unacceptable behaviors, even if there are a variety of you know even if we reject the kind of absolutism that says there is literally only one right answer to a particular question. Um. So I actually kind of disagree with this, independent of this you know theory of consciousness so uh what i and i think we've talked about this a little bit in the past but Mm -hmm. the way i would have described myself i'm slightly fuzzy on this now but only at like a very very like precise level but the way i would have described myself is i'm a value realist if not a moral realist so i think that like Hmm. the objects that morality addresses are real and again i'm you know a little shakier on this now but like Things like, you know, pleasure and suffering are real things. And you can say true stuff about how, like, a given action is likely to impact those things. Um, I don't know where you get... So I both don't know where you get the, the like, ought-type language, and I don't know what good it would be to get it if you could. Because, you know, either someone is persuaded by your argument to act in a certain way or not, and there being some truth at the bottom of everything doesn't mm-hmm. seem to ever be causally active. So, like, I'm a value realist, and I think that does all the work that anything would do anyway. What do you think? I think I need to have you back on to talk about value realism versus moral realism. I think that's an interesting distinction and i haven't heard it drawn in that particular way and i want to ponder it some more it seems to me just off the cuff that like if you're a realist about values i have a hard time imagining how you can avoid being a realist about certain ethical claims um but that's a that's a really interesting distinction and i think um it's it's this whole thing has been very very useful do you have any final thoughts i think about i realize we're getting a little short on time here about this particular argument before we uh, hop on over to the lightning round? Um, I just want to emphasize that I'm, you know, I, if any of the listeners have any feedback, I'm very open to that. I'm not wedded to any of the positions I've taken. I feel like I've just been backed into a corner basically. (laughs) I feel that way about most of my philosophy. (laughs) Philosophy is about being continuously backed into corners and then finding another corner to be backed into instead. Yeah. It feels more honest at least. Yeah. Sure. You know, I mean, the no free will view is that you're getting pushed around by all this stuff all the time anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's really interesting. All right. So let's do our patent pending realism, anti-realism lightning round. I think you're the kind of individual who can hem and haw their way through this properly. And since you loved it so much, you get to run through it yourself now. Excellent. I think this is just the best thing. So I'll I'll try to be as unequivocal as possible just because that makes everything too boring. Right. You understand the rules, no equivocating, but you also don't have to define it so you can hedge later. 
Right, right. All right, so here we go. The external world. Uh, man, I'm losing right off the bat. Uh, <laughs> it all I'll, looks so easy I, until you start. I know, I know, I know. It sounds ridiculous, but uh, I'll go ahead and say real. We can. I'm like a quick modest. Maybe we could get into that on a different episode. But yeah, uh, making philosophers say one word is the cruelest game. Um, phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal consciousness. Then. Uh, I'm leaning towards real. Yeah. Real. Okay. Qualia. Uh, I see that as the same as the last one. So real. Okay. Some people do. Some people don't. I just, you know, like to, like to throw it in there for, for, uh, specificity. Um, free will. Uh, absolutely not real. Incoherence, not even a real term or concept. Right. Right. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> selves. Uh, nope, not at all. Okay. Personal identity. Uh, no, not really. Not at the end okay. of the day. Good. Didn't immediately go into the constructed phrase, which is good. We don't yeah. hear anything about construction here. Uh, genders? Uh, no, definitely not. Mm-hmm. Races? Nope. Species? Nope. No, definitely not. <laughs> not, even um, not even close. <laughs> uh, science people are fun. Um, <laughs> morality? Uh... Yeah, I mean, the best I can do is the value realism thing. So okay. in the sense that I think you want it, no, but we probably don't really disagree that much. Okay, fair enough. We'll call it a draw. Uh, rights? No, no. <laughs> I love how people, many people are like, yes on morality and fuck no on rights. <laughs> <laughs> um, knowledge? Uh closer than all the other ones if i if i'm being fair and applying the same sort of like harsh standard across the board then no but like knowledge is way more real than something like gender so like okay. 0.9 units of realness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the spectrums come out um modalities uh i'm i don't know what that means <laughs> like uh modal realism like uh you know, if I say things could have been this way, is there some world in which they were oh, that no. way? That doesn't. No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, uh, God or gods, no. if you prefer. That was the easiest one. Yeah, yeah. it's a, you know some of these are softballs here. Oh, it's um, yeah. Right. I, I like to include the softballs because it throws people off. And I, you know, like society. What about that? Oh yeah. No, I mean clearly not. <laughs> okay. Uh, numbers. Ah, this is a tricky one. I I might have to cop out on this one and take a pass. There's no passes in in, in lightning round. Okay, fine. Uh, then there's no given excluded middle of, here. <laughs> given all of the unspoken information that you don't have access to in my head, yes, I'm going yes on numbers. Good. There we go. That's a strong choice. Uh, abstract entities. Uh, I yes. I mean, if if by you know. If by that you don't mean like the platonic thing, like the platonic chair, and you mean something like, you know, group theory, then yes, mm-hmm. real. Okay. Okay. Uh, chairs? Uh, chairs are not real. <laughs> chairs are not real. All right. No one ever believes chairs are real. <laughs> uh, science? Uh, it's weaker than I did with numbers. So we'll go with like the 0. 0.7. Okay. And finally, natural laws? Uh, yes. Uh, it's very strong on that one. Strong. Yes. Strong. Real. Okay. You survived. Congratulations. <laughs> How do you feel? 
Oh, it was fun. I, I hoped I would be more clear cut, but yeah, that's it. That's hard. I love it. It's a great. Are way there any ones that I didn't ask that you think I should add to the list? No, you really covered all the important stuff. I think I, I'm sure okay. I'll think of one when I get off the air, but yeah, that's all right. You can always send it to me later. Yeah. Oh, fun stuff. All right. So what do you have for us for making the void livable to wrap us out here? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is pretty cliche, but, uh, it's heartfelt and my answer would just be people. So, you know, other people, close relationships, you know, like love and friendship and that kind of thing. I'm, uh, I'm somebody that has struggled with, uh, fairly serious depression for my entire adult life. And there have been moments when I didn't have the strength to do something just because it was good for me. You know, that like, you know, it was bad enough that like that was devalued. That didn't count. But mm-hmm. how, you know, stuff that would happen to me would make the people I love felt was more salient than how I would feel about it. And that's really, uh, that's dug me out of some really deep holes. So, yeah, that's my uh, that's my bedrock. Has there been something particular that that brought that one up? Some personal, I don't even know if you don't talk about it if you don't want to, but like some friendship, some interaction that has been particularly salient on this front? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, this is, uh, I guess, uh, trigger warning for, you know, suicidal ideation and everything. But in one of the grad programs, I eventually left. I was at Stanford and I basically had a total breakdown and I was uh, very suicidal. And someone who was just, you know, a fairly good friend, but uh, you know, not, not one of my closest friends reached out to me to, you know, basically say, Hey, before you do anything, like, I don't know what I'm doing either. I'm just as lost as you are. Like I'm in Colorado right now, couch surfing, you know, come hang out with me. And I did. And you know, that, you know, one thing led to another and I'm married to that person now. So Hmm. they, uh, they definitely saved my life. So that's such a voidy, beautiful void love story. <laughs> Thank you for, for sharing that with us. That's really wonderful. Sure. So, you know, yeah, that reaching out to people, that's connecting. That's that, that is I know. I mean, it's it's cliche, but like that's our that's our mantra here. I feel like at this in this part of the void that like the void is horrifying and then you reach out or someone reaches out and it's a little bit less horrifying. Absolutely. And, you know, don't get so <laughs> jaded that you discount that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good stuff. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this, and we definitely need to get you back on to debate moral realism, I think, a little more thoroughly. Now that you've made me very sympathetic to panpsychism, at least, it sounds like, you know, it's not of the bullets that I bite in my ontology. It doesn't sound like the worst one now that I've thought about it some more. No, no, it's really not that bad at all. I don't think I'd be delighted to come back on. It's been an absolute blast. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Is there any place they, in particular that you got in, uh, stuff out there at the moment? Uh, no, they, they don't get to find me anywhere, but here <laughs> I have I disengaged, like all right. disengaged from all social media. So I've got nothing. How do you feel about that? Speaking of, we got an extra second. What do you? Uh, you I noticed that you have. I haven't seen you on Twitter much anymore. Are you? Oh yeah, are you I, happier I without that. Uh yeah, I deleted my Twitter. I haven't deleted my Facebook so that just so that people can like contact me via messenger. I never mm-hmm. get on that post. But uh, 
Yeah, it's been a lot better for me. I don't want to project this onto anybody else, but I found that social media as a whole was just functioning as an engine to make me more angry about things that I can't really change. And it was just making me miserable. So, uh, yeah, I just, I read the Washington Post now, so I don't miss out if, you know, we go to war with Iran or something. But uh, other than that, yeah, I'm much happier. <laughs> the Washington Post is just the right amount of miserable for you? Yeah, yeah, I can still get mad at their shitty right-wing opinion writers, but yeah, oh, I, uh, I can't actually yell at them. They won't read it, so it's healthier, I think. Fair enough. Well, I do miss you on Twitter, I'll be honest, but I'm, I'm glad that you are in a happier place uh, <laughs> and getting to hang out with a lovely person. And um, thank you you so much for talking about all of this. And we will get you back on again soon, I imagine. Sounds awesome. Looking forward to it. 